These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, not just on your mouth. You need to live this before your children. Demonstrate it. So it's speaking about demonstration. And then verses 7 through 9, exhortation. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Good to see everyone back here this evening. I want you to take your Bibles and be turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 28. We want to look this evening at a familiar passage of Scripture, verses 18 through 20. And I have printed there in your bulletin that we're also going to look at Genesis chapter 1. So we're going to bounce uh, back and forth kind of using Matthew chapter 28 as a a trampoline to jump back to Genesis chapter 1 and then to use Genesis 1 and jump back to Matthew 28 and try to find the connection that we see there. The title of the message, A New Creation Mandate, and I'll pick up in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we consider your word this evening, we pray for a special unction of your Holy Spirit. Lord, to freshly open up Matthew 28 to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, to understand the breadth and the depth, the height and the length of your glorious plan for the universe that you've created. The establishment of the kingdom of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who even now is reigning on high. We come to you through our great high priest. We come to you only in the name of our great high priest, our prophet, our priest and our King Jesus, asking that you would bless us in the study of your word this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 is really famously referred to as the Great Commission. And I'm sure that many of us have heard a number of messages on the Great Commission, this wonderful charge that our Lord gives to the disciples and by extension to us. Uh, to go into all the world and to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of the nations. Tonight, however, I want to to refer to this passage as a new creation mandate or the new creation mandate instead of the Great Commission. You do understand that those nifty little titles at the top of uh, certain passages of Scripture um, are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the reason that I want to change this to a new creation mandate is simple. And it sort of comes from a a little bit of a negative position, but I think that you'll understand why, because I think uh, a study of it this way will yield a positive result. And that is because I think too many false notions are associated with the former, former title, the Great Commission, 
leading to what I would call an unbalanced and perhaps even an erroneous interpretation and application of this passage. Also, because we want to take this great commission or new creation mandate back to its roots, I really believe that in order to understand the New Testament, we need to understand the Old Testament. And in order to understand the Old Testament, we need to understand the New Testament. So I want to go back to the roots of Matthew chapter 28, back to where it started. And you might think this would be maybe at the beginning of uh, our Lord's ministry when he called the disciples, but really the, the roots of the Great Commission or the new creation mandate goes all the way back to creation itself. We oftentimes refer to Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28 as the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. And because I believe that Genesis 1 is the origin of Matthew 28, that's why I'm calling Matthew 28 the new creation mandate. The Old Testament version of Matthew 28 found in the first book of the New Testament is found in the first book of the Old Testament in Genesis 1, its roots. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 1. I told you we're going to bounce here and then we will bounce back to Matthew 28 here in a little bit. This um, cultural mandate, Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, or creation mandate, begins this way. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, understand in the context of Genesis that this creation mandate is given prior to the fall, prior to sin, this creation or cultural mandate. It's given to man, and in fact, it's given to the only man in existence, namely Adam. Eve, at this point, has not even been created. That title, the cultural mandate, I think is fitting. So we could call it a creation mandate, but I think cultural mandate um, gives to it sort of the essence of what God is asking of Adam, and then by extension, Eve and their children. The word culture is where we get the related term cultivate. Um, Adam was given, therefore, a commission, we could say, to cultivate the garden, to cultivate the plant life, the animal life, to take dominion, as verse 28 says. He was to be God's vice regent on earth. But that's not all. That word cultivate also has the idea of educating or refining so that Adam's commission included a sort of training and improving and cultivating not just material things, but also the souls of those underneath him in his household, namely his future wife Eve, and then also his children that he would raise according to this commission, in which this whole dominion mandate, cultural mandate, creation mandate, to rule the earth, to subdue the garden, would actually be a family affair. So there was a man who was in charge. Adam was responsible, ultimately, but he was also responsible to inform his family of their garden duties. And so together, Adam and his family literally had their work cut out for them by God. 
And this is no like small task. This would require great industry. But because God gave this prior to the fall, everything that man touched, not just physically, but also intellectually and theologically, would turn to gold. Adam had the capacity of King Midas. In fact, he was viewed by God as a king. He is the first king, the vice regent of God. And he is commissioned to take dominion with all of his being, with all of his family, with all of his might, physically, intellectually, educationally, emotionally, theologically. God gave to him this paradise. And understand, it was not merely, Adam, here is this garden, and I just want you to keep up what I created for you. No, He wanted Adam to extend this garden. He wanted Adam to refine this garden and its citizens. So the word culture is a good word because it's related to the word cultivate and what it means to cultivate an environment. The word mandate simply means a command or a charge. So the cultural mandate, therefore, can only be understood in the the concept of a covenant. The obligation of covenant man to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over it, under God because he has been created in the image of God. And since there wasn't yet the presence of sin in God's world, you might ask, what was it that would guide Adam in this task? There doesn't appear to be an instruction manual that God gives to Adam. Well, the instruction manual was the law of God that was written on Adam and Eve's heart that would guide this sort of home improvement, community improvement project of extending the garden. He was commissioned by God to work and to keep God's garden, Adam's new and only home. So imagine this with me for a moment, if you will, the freshness of it all, the newness. Even Adam himself was brand new, and no doubt prior to the fall he took great enjoyment and even maximum fulfillment in seeing his new hands get to work and accomplish things for God. And so the question comes, what could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot could go wrong, namely sin, disobedience, divergence from God's intended purpose of the garden that God created for his glory and he entrusted to Adam. What could go wrong is rebellion. And that's what we read in Genesis 3. Chaos ensues because of the serpent's deception and Adam's rank wide eyes open disobedience to God. But in the midst of the chaos of despair that Satan caused, there was a word from God, a chorus of hope promised by God. And it's tucked away in Genesis chapter 3. First of all, the consequences are clear. Before we get to the good news, verse 14 of Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, curse to you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on your belly, belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will the enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first promise of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. But there are consequences. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The word of promise there is in verse 15. This serpent will bruise 
or bruise your heel, the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would bruise the head or crush the head of the serpent. And then we read in verse 21 that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the first representation of the gospel. That a sacrifice was made, blood was shed because of this sin, but that God was giving to them a picture of the righteousness that would cover them if they would trust in the promise of God. And he would accept them and embrace them even though there would be consequences and of course they would be kicked out of the garden. Now we don't normally put it like this, but God's answer to this problem was a new creation without doing away with the old creation. God did not obliterate the old creation. He marked the garden off with cherubim that guarded it. But God was going to fix this world through the appearance of a new Adam who would come on the scene from the seed of a woman. We're speaking about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15 refers to this as the second Adam or the last Adam. That because the entire world was bound up and represented in the first Adam in bondage to sin, there would come a second Adam being born in the likeness of men, Philippians 2.7, being found in human form, Philippians 2.8, and he would not come into the world with the same fanfare of the first Adam. This last Adam would be, as Philippians 2.8 says, humbled by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And such is precisely for the sake of fallen man redeemed and the glorious obedience of the one man for the many that God, Philippians 2.9-11, has highly exalted, exalted him by his resurrection, ascension, and session at the right hand of God and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Now that language should sound familiar to you because I just read Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus, this one resurrected and exalted. So this King Jesus, this second Adam, would be raised high. The serpent would strike his heel, but he would crush the serpent beneath his feet. And this is why the New Testament begins where Genesis left off. The rest of the Old Testament is not silent about the coming of the second Adam, but we could say that the Old Testament whispered about the second Adam's coming, whereas the New Testament shouts it. But the same gospel note of God's promised chorus in Genesis 3.15, that salvation would come, rings out again in the announcement of Jesus' birth to humble shepherds in a field, where these angels announced the glorious news that there would be peace on earth. There's that language of earth again, God's creation. And of course, you read in Luke's gospel, you have the angel's announcement to Joseph and Mary that she would be with child. You have the announcement by the angel to Zechariah that his son John the Baptist would be the forerunner to the Christ. You have in Matthew's gospel, the beginning of it, the record of the genealogy of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. So that everything is front-loaded, as it were, in the Gospels to tell us that Christmas Day is the birthday of God's new creation with the birth of the second Adam into the world. In fact, if you just think for a moment, you have in Genesis the same Spirit of God 
in Genesis 1 is present in the miracle of the God-man being birthed to the virgin Mary, the seed of the woman. Just like the first Adam came straight from God, the second Adam came straight from God. He left heaven and he came to earth. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit through the virgin Mary, Jesus was Adam's son, And he was God's son, one at the same time. He was David's son, and yet David's Lord, one at the same time. King David's son, and King David's king. And what would this new Adam do exactly? Well, he would undo the curse of the fall due to the first Adam's disobedience. And what this would involve would be a series of new births through the gospel where souls are restored, man is restored as a covenant keeper because of his new identity and the new Adam, Jesus Christ, who represents him. And collectively, this new humanity, Peter actually calls it a race. This new humanity and God's new creation that is being made new by the power of the Holy Spirit would fulfill, listen to this, the original Adam's original calling and subduing the earth to God's authority, subjecting all enemies under his feet, restoring God's rightful role of dominion, even as his people inherit heaven and earth because of him. Matthew 5.5, 5, Jesus says, we will inherit that. So Christ's birth is joyful news. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, which means undoing the cursings, far as the curse is found. Comfort, comfort ye my people, for the herald's voice is crying in the desert far and near, bidding all men to repentance, since the kingdom now is here. All that warning cry obey, now prepare for God away. Let the valleys rise to meet him, and the hills bow down to greet him. Make ye straight what long was crooked make the rougher places plain let your hearts be true and humble as befits his holy reign for the glory of the lord now over earth is shed abroad and all flesh shall see the token that his word is never broken so that is a summary of how genesis 1 is connected to matthew 28 this cultural mandate given to adam to cultivate The garden of God, with all of his being, was an absolute and total failure. But instead of God wiping out the old creation, he made his son become part of this old creation to make a new creation where the second Adam would do what the first Adam failed to do. So when we come to Matthew chapter 28, this is a new creation mandate. It is a recapitulation of the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 or the creation mandate in Genesis 1 now in the new covenant in light of Christ's accomplished redemption. He has been exalted. His session at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning over all things, whether you see it or believe it or not. He is even now King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. So in this new creation mandate, there are three noteworthy aspects concerning Christ's kingdom. There's the power over the kingdom, the parts of the kingdom, there's three parts, and then the presence in the kingdom. Notice with me, first of all, the power over the kingdom. Turn back with me to Matthew 28, and we see this in verse number 18. And Jesus came and said to them, that is to the Disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now notice the the inclusive nature of this statement. 
all authority, not just in heaven, but on earth, it's inclusive, but an exclusive king has been given to me. The two spheres of Christ's authority is heaven and earth. The Greek word for authority is exousia. It literally means a right to act, decide, or even dispose of one's property as one wishes. I like that last definition. This whole world is King Jesus's. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and a thousand and one hills, and he can dispose of his property as he wishes. This man of sorrows acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, has now been given the fullest possible, sovereign, universal, and total authority without the limitations of his incarnation. He's still the God-man, truly human, truly divine, and forever will be. In fact, this is really an echo, this this mentioning of his authority is an echo of Daniel uh, chapter 7. And, And Sean read it for us earlier. Daniel 7 and verse 14, to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, there's that word again used in Genesis, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The first Adam's little kingdom kind of crumbled before it even began. But here in Daniel 7, we read of the nations. We read of people. In Matthew 28, we read of nations in verse 19. We read of the end of the age in verse 20, which is an indication that this is an everlasting kingdom. So the risen Lord Jesus is the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7. Rather than being defeated, he has been vindicated. He is the universal sovereign king. His exaltation came only through his humiliation, but because he humbled himself and because he defeated Satan. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, Satan offered to Jesus sovereignty over the earth, and Jesus did not take the bait. He went the way of the father instead of the way of the serpent, unlike the first Adam who went the way of the serpent instead of the way of his creator, God. In other words, the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. And what you need to see is that the commission he's going to give the apostles is grounded in the power and authority that has already been bestowed upon him. He's declared king of kings and Lord of Lords. And you could just trace this, for example, through Matthew's gospel from the royal line of David in Matthew chapter 1, following Jesus' genealogy going back to David, on into chapter 2, where the Magi searched for the king of the Jews, on into chapter 21, where the king rode in on a colt into Jerusalem, all the way to being accused of blasphemy because Jesus affirmed his kingship. The victory of King Jesus is sure, he has been given authority. But the victory march has just begun. The war against the world, the flesh, and the devil is raging. His kingship is not in doubt. It will be successful, but God has work for his people, his subjects, who now find their identity in him, who are now bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so the cultural mandate or creation mandate of Genesis 1 is now fulfilled and recapitulated in Matthew 28 with this new creation mandate given by the authority of King Jesus to go and wage war and to take dominion. And he promises to give the power to pull it off. Now, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 just quickly because sort of a general answer for how this is done is given to us by the Apostle Paul. This is really a warfare passage. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, Paul says, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Why do we have divine power? Because Jesus has been given power and authority. Divine power to destroy strongholds. What are these? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is language of dominion. That is language of kingship. That is language of conquering and subduing. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul is saying that all enemies of Christ will be brought in subjection to Him. And that the friends of Christ, the, the people of Christ, the body of Christ is to seek to bring not just people, but all things into subjection. Paul is speaking here in 2 Corinthians 10 about ideologies and philosophies and theologies, not just material things, not just the souls of people, immaterial, or the physical bodies of people, but ideas captive to Christ. He's talking about the cultural mandate, that before the fall, the task was less complicated, but now that man has been regenerated, infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, commissioned by Jesus, the declaration of a new creation, and the power and the authority of Jesus, he now gives them these marching orders to fulfill the dominion mandate. Now, two things are necessary. And they both flow from the power of Christ. Number one is regeneration. There will be no dominion by King Jesus apart from souls being saved from the wrath of God. And there will be no dominion of Jesus without the new birth of one's soul. And there will be no kingdom apart from God's elect sheep calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. So Regeneration is necessary, and this is according to the power of God, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But second that flows from Christ's power is reformation. And I'm speaking about reformation of the culture. You remember I used the word cultivate, which is close to the word culture, which speaks about refining our environment. So you need to sort of divorce from your mind the notion that culture is a bad thing. Culture is not a bad thing. Culture can become a bad thing because of the fall. But there is nothing wrong in and of itself of the arts or music or education or sports or politics or any other thing that you can think of. The problem is, is that sin has cursed those various things. And a reformation of the culture is what Jesus is calling for here, a robust Christian influence to take the world back for Christ's glory, to fight for the crown rights of King Jesus, take the ground that is truly His back until heaven and earth is restored. 
As one writer says, and I quote, we are to demolish every kind of theory, humanistic, evolutionary, idolatrous, or otherwise, and every kind of rampart or opposition to the dominion of God in Christ. The world and men must be brought into captivity to Christ under the dominion of the King of God and the law of that kingdom. Some people say, is there law in the New Testament? Let me ask you a question. Is there Jesus in the New Testament? And does Jesus have power and authority? Well, how does he exert his power and authority? Of course, there's law. But what does this look like? Because we're speaking in big categories. The power over the kingdom takes us to the second thing that I want you to see in Matthew 28, and that is the parts of the kingdom. There are three spheres touched upon in overlapping but distinct identification that you need to become familiar with. In Christ's domain, there is the sphere of the family, the sphere of the church, and the sphere of the state or civil authorities. The sphere of the family is given the rod as a weapon of discipline. The sphere of the church is given the keys as as an instrument of discipline to protect the purity of the church. The sphere of the state is given the sword to promote good and to punish evil. And all three of these spheres are touched upon in what we call the Great Commission, which we normally just associate with telling other people about Christ so that they repent and place faith in in Him. But really, King Jesus is identifying three spheres of His new creation, which is all belonging to Him, in which He wants to take dominion. We're going to start with the one you least expect, and that's the sphere of the state. And the reason I want to talk about this part first is because there's mass confusion about it, and also because it's the first one mentioned. Notice verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So we've read about nations and languages and people from Daniel 7, the dominion that belongs to the kingdom of God. And here Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This authoritative Christ wants his authority recognized in all nations. Since nations are made up of individuals, this begins with the regeneration of souls so that the priority of God's people is the declaration of the gospel that sinners might be saved from condemnation. But nations are made up of individuals collectively. And that's the language Jesus uses. Make disciples of all nations. As Abraham Kuyper says, all authority is established, maintained, and exercised not by convention or legislation, but only by God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. He is the king over all civil magistrates. This is why in Romans 13, and we won't take the time to go there this evening, but in Romans 13, it is clearly laid out by the Apostle Paul that he is the one that has appointed governors and princes and presidents and kings. God's sovereign authority touches all things in heaven and on earth. So obviously the state is included. 
Kuyper, quoting him again, political authority operates alongside many other authorities that are equally absolute and sacred in the natural and spiritual world in society and family. Every attempt by political authority to try and rule over one of those other areas is therefore a violation of God's ordinances and resistance to it is not a crime but a duty. That when the state tries to tell the church what to do, the church should disobey. When the state tries to tell the family how to educate their children, the family is to disobey. And a biblical study of the origin of the state reveals its ultimate authority is derived from God alone. The state is not a law unto itself. And furthermore, Jesus Christ has crown rights over the state because he is the one that invented government. They are not a law unto themselves. Turn back with me to Genesis again for a moment. Genesis chapter 11. And you're familiar with the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 and verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Very interesting. Unlike the institution of the family sphere, the state was not established at creation. There is an attempt at Babel to have a world empire made up of the human race, and God disperses it. He says, this is not my idea, this is your idea. So the institution of the state or government or civil magistrates is a result of man's depravity, and it is a demonstration of God's common grace to curb or restrain sin and to keep peace. And ironically, here in Genesis 11, in order for God to achieve greater peace, he had to cause worldwide division. Don't miss that. He's the one that dispersed them. This isn't because God views us primarily through ethnic or national lenses, the color of our skin or our ethnicity, but because man by his own power can never achieve oneness of the human race. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think physicians exist? Because sin has cursed the world and your body is decaying and breaking down. Why do you think lawyers exist in the world? Because there's a law that's been broken and the innocent need to be defended and the guilty need to be punished. But why do you think there are preachers who call on repentance? The answer, because we live in a sinful, broken world. And although God didn't establish the state at creation, he was the author post-fall as a demonstration of his grace. He established civil government. And that really began here with Babel. Now, in the eternal state, there will be no need for states or nations. 1 Peter 2.9. We're a holy race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So Christ is the head of his people, contained in one body, represented by Jesus Christ. But what I want you to see is that the Tower of Babel was a building project of prideful rebellion. The human race was very young at this point. And this sort of new human race came into being after the flood. There was sort of a a new creation from three brothers. These were the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
The Bible tells us they settled in the fertile plains where the Tigris and Euphrates flowed. They put their minds together in a unified humanity project to build this tower, to reach the clouds. At least that was in the blueprints, but God sighted them. And he brought the construction to a halt. He confused their speech and he scattered them. That's what Genesis 11.9 says. And so these three lines of Noah, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, these three clans, that's really what they were, clans or tribes, went north and south and east and west. And at this time in the world, the population of the world was only about 50,000 people. But from this settled land that Babel's tower was built and then stopped, rose Babylon, the self-proclaimed world empire. And from this world empire, that precedent came Persian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Roman Empire. In fact, Augustus saw his empire as a world. He refers to the census that he gives in Luke 2 as a census that was to go out into all the world. I'm king of the world. That's my empire. Where did that come from? It came from Babel. It came from sinful man. Alexander the Great dreamed of this. Napoleon dreamed of this. Hitler dreamed of this. And this quest was rank rebellion rooted in unbelief. Because what did God say in Genesis 3? He said, trust me. And instead of trusting God that the seed of the woman would bring everyone back together and bring them back to God, they rejected the promise of Christ. Instead of trusting God, they turned on God. They strived in their human flesh to have one city of mankind to maintain peace and order. And God says, no, 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 no. If you do that, it'll be massive bloodshed. You will wipe yourselves out within the first two weeks. It's almost as if they just didn't believe God. Skip back to verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top In the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Is this not just like humanism and secularism? It's our wisdom and our thoughts and our modernism and our progressive mindset that is going to fix the world's problems. And God says that's happened time and time and again throughout history, beginning in Genesis. He hated it then, he hates it today. They were not patient to trust in the first gospel. Now, most linguists believe that all languages come from a single source. I don't think that's much of a profound statement because all you have to do is read the Bible to understand that. Anyone who understands the Tower of Babel knows there was one language, but eventually the abolishing of this one language led to many languages where people began to gather together and collect together because they could understand one another, understand the practical import of this. How are you going to do commerce if you can't understand what the next person is saying? And how God did it, I don't know. There's a mystery to it, but people started speaking this way and gravitated this way. People spoke this way, gravitated this way, and gradually this led to the establishment of the state. It's interesting to think that in Matthew 28, it is the language of the gospel that brings the world together. It's the language of Jesus Christ crucified that brings the nations together. But there they went in Genesis. One writer tells us that the population was made of three main groups, 50,000 people, divided into 10 groups, 5,000 tribes or clans. But nationhood really didn't develop as we know it until there was warfare. So this is sort of how it went. One tribe commits a terrorist act on a settlement or a city, And other cities make an alliance 
to then protect one another. I have a book, at, many books, but <laughs> I have one particular book. I think I know where it is. 365 days of the year, and it tells you on that day in history what major battle took place. You realize that history is just one war after another. The world is one bloodbath. And it was hand-to-hand combat. It was personal, it was vicious, and it was effective to protect your territory, to protect your people and your settlement. And that is where strong warrior leaders came from. The top priority, to find someone who was courageous and reckless. You remember, we looked at it in 1 Samuel. Patriarchy faded because an old man can't charge into battle. But Saul who is taller than everyone else and looks like a warrior, like he's going to kill someone. He's the man we want for king. And that's how nationhoods and states came. And as bloody as it was, at least God and His common grace dispersed mankind or otherwise they would have already wiped themselves out. Again, quoting Abraham Kuyper, he lists five characteristics of a nation. They have a leader, they have a land, they have a law, they have a language, they have a people. And it's not really been until recently that nations started failing to recognize that the power of the state was delegated to them by God or by some God. The social, social contract theory of Rousseau was rooted in godlessness, arguing that individuals joined together to appoint government for themselves in this sort of social contract. You just sort of make up the rules as you go. But most nations have recognized a higher power. The point is that God confusing speech at Babel was a demonstration of his common grace because it created an atmosphere that fostered an awareness that the existence of a state and the continuing existence of a state was dependent upon a higher power because it was a vicious world. And although there was anarchy and chaos... States, governments were instituted by God in the dispersion of the people that it would lead to governments to protect the people and to punish evil. And everything associated with culture was cultivated by man in the context of successful nation states. Complex architecture, music, art, recreation, education. It all took place in successful nations. This was God's idea to disperse the human race in order to salvage it. In fact, what did God say to Abraham not long after he dispersed the people in Genesis chapter 12? Well, just look with me there. He says, I will bless those who bless you, verse 3, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of what? The earth shall be blessed. God's plan was always to bring mankind back together. And a little hint of this is the division that was brought about because of sin between Adam and Eve. The most precious of relationships, the marriage union, even that is cursed by sin. Adam, you're going to try to rule over your wife and and Eve. You're going to not want to submit them because you're going to think you're always right. This is the curse. And the only thing that will bring you two back together is the same thing that will bring the world back together, and that's the promise of the seed of the woman that all families of the earth, all nations, would be in one kingdom under Christ. Have you ever considered how many times the Bible speaks about Jesus in connection with the world? For God so loved the world 
that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Matthew 13, the field is the, is, is, is the place in which the seed of the gospel is sown. John 1, 29, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 6, 51, Jesus gave his body for the life of the world. John 17, 21, Jesus prayed that the world may believe that you sent me. 1 John 4, 14, Jesus is called the savior of the world. Revelation eleven fifteen, he's the king of the world and he has become the king this this he's the king of the world and it has become the kingdom of our lord john says kiss the son psalm 2 lest he be angry with you praise the lord all nations extol him all people psalm 117 what, what about first corinthians chapter 15 I've, I've alluded to it many times but in first corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24 then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to god the father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet so in bethlehem a new world order was birthed with king jesus this king of kings as one writer says it is not just a body with a head nor simply a flock under a shepherd but a king under whose scepter there is a kingdom and who has been appointed king over that kingdom. And why did God separate the people? Because if there were no nations, there would be no governments, and no governments means no war, and no war means no justice, and, and, and no war means no army. In God's common grace, he established nations and governments and armies because he was going to battle with Satan. It would be a blood bath. Herod and Pilate opposed Jesus. And what did Jesus, how did he announce his arrival? He said that he came to preach the kingdom of God. John the Baptist announced his arrival that way too. The kingdom of God. So in the transition period, I'm quoting here, the situation is thus as follows. States continue to exist and the kings of the earth still wave their scepters, but up high and highly exalted above them all, there is the Son of God and the Son of Man who has been appointed as king to establish a kingdom that is not from the earth, but shall be maintained by the power of heaven. That is sort of a broad understanding of the fact that regardless of what your anxieties are here tonight about things going on in the world and nations and politics and all of that, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and we ought to do everything we can do within our power to be part of a Christian nation. That is not a negative thing. That is not a bad thing. That is a biblical thing, a thoroughly biblical thing because we've been given a new creation mandate that his dominion would be over the nations, the sphere of the state. Moving quickly... Go back with me to, to Matthew chapter 28. There's a second sphere, and we're going to move very, very rapidly. Don't worry. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now this touches upon the family because parents bring their children to the church to be baptized. So I understand it's the church that does it, and we're going to talk about the church, but... This is touching upon the sphere of the family, the most foundational of all three institutions. In fact, between the three institutions of the state, uh, the family, and the church, there's only one that was instituted at creation, and that's the family. 
That's why there's so many exhortations in the New Testament to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's so many Proverbs that speak about God promising blessing if you do things the right way and raise your children the right way. One of those is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn back with me to the Old Testament. It's good to to turn back to our Old Testament when we're studying the New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Christian parent should look to cultivate generational commitments and values to fulfill Jesus' new creation mandate with a gospel-centered focus. And how do they do it? First of all, you're to look forward. You're to be progressive. Verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Notice how many times it says that you may. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, and that your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That you may, that you may, that you may. This is a forward-looking, progressive sort of mindset. Verse 4 is the beginning of the Shema. This is the foundational prayer of Israel. And what it's saying is that we are to cultivate generational commitments and values by laying a foundation for the future for our children. That we have a responsibility to shape their worldview. That, that is not the responsibility of the public school. And it's not the responsibility of your neighbor or someone else. It's the responsibility of parents. God gives this responsibility to parents to remind them there is one God. There is one Lord over heaven and earth. And that's the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So there has to be this futuristic looking forward, this idea of being progressive in the good sense, the biblical sense. But not only must we look forward and be progressive, we must look upward and be proactive. Notice verse 9, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He's speaking to parents here. You need to demonstrate the gospel to your children. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, not just on your mouth. You need to live this before your children. Demonstrate it. So it's speaking about demonstration. And then verses 7 through 9, exhortation. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Wow. You're telling me this is a full-time job. If you do it right, if you don't care about doing it right, then... Don't worry about it. Have as many hobbies as you want. Send your kid to the public school. Send mom to work. What God is laying down here is establishing one Lord God as king over the home. That's what he's saying. Look forward, be progressive. Look upward, be proactive. Look backward, be reflective. 
Trust the authority of the blessing. Notice verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and you are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. He's saying, trust the authority of the blessing. Be reflective on the way God has blessed you generationally. And fear the admonishment of bad behavior. Verse 15, for the Lord your God is in your midst and He's a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and He destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord God had promised. How in the world can you walk contrary to this? How can you not instill in your family the values of King Jesus after all God has done for you? Do you not trust the authority of the blessing? Do you not fear the admonishment of bad behavior? And do you remember the actualization of the benefit? Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, that's a great question, son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. This is the testimony of the mouth and demonstrating to our children where our trust and our hope lies that we as the people of God have been delivered from the bondage of sin and sorrow because the word was passed down generationally. Testimony of the mouth, testimony of the eyes, verse 22, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt, against Pharaoh, against all his household before our eyes, and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. It wasn't just God saying a bunch of stuff. He actually acted on it. Have you ever heard the story about your grandfather who God saved in that car accident? Have you ever heard about what God did to to save uh, your cousin who was walking away from the Lord and God intervened in his life? We are a family and we are a family of Jesus Christ and He is King of kings and Lord of lords and with the testimony of our mouth and with the testimony of our eyes, we then speak about the testimony of our experience. Verse 24, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. We do it this way because it works, because God blesses this, and it will be righteousness, verse 25, for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. We need a reformation in the home. We need men who are serious about loving their wives and loving their children, getting rid of the golf game, getting rid of hunting, getting rid of fishing, and doing what they need to do as men to be the leaders of their home. To tell them that family roots are in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is heritage, there are confessions, there are church traditions, there are politics and sports and art and music. All these household tastes of our family that are centered around Jesus Christ. The sphere of the state, the sphere of the family, the sphere of the church. Turn back to Matthew 28. 
and I'll bring this quickly to an end. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is obviously something done by the church, but the parents have to initiate that. And then on in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That, that is the job of the church. Obviously not an institution in the garden, but the idea of Adam as a priest was, do you realize that the two verbs in Genesis 2.15 when God told Adam to work and to keep the garden, those same two verbs are used to describe the priests in the tabernacle and the temple later in Scripture. Because that garden was the, the temple of God, the presence of God. He fellowship with Adam and Eve. And after sin arose, God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins to cover their shame, their guilt of sin. And all of a sudden you see all these altars and sacrifices being made. Abraham making altars and sacrifices. Noah making an altar and a sacrifice. Job, the priest for his family, offering sacrifices for his children, all pointing to Jesus Christ, the great high priest. The church in the second Adam becomes the corporate priesthood of God, the mouthpiece of God. As I said, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. Or even Paul's words, I, I think, obviously Paul was speaking as a unique apostle in 2 Corinthians 5.20, but when he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, that does apply to the church. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the church's duty. To teach, to edify, to evangelize. As Luther said, the church is to be a mouth house for God and his glory. Baptizing and teaching, that's word and sacrament, the duties of the church. And who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ. We know that. That's a Sunday school answer. But who's the head of the state? The answer is the same. Jesus Christ. Who's the head of the family? It's not dad. It's Jesus Christ. And so in this new creation mandate, Jesus is covering the power over the kingdom, the parts of the kingdom, the family, the church, and the state, and also the presence in the kingdom. The end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God's power goes with us because His Spirit is in us. And Jesus says, I want to do a work in my people that is not minimalistic. This is not a work that does not include other people in the world. We have jobs, we have neighbors, we have a community, and we are to do all that we can to fulfill this new creation mandate by being faithful where God has placed us so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that this world will be filled and full of the dominion of King Jesus where all things are subjected to him his spirit is with us his spirit is in us and so let me ask you a question do you think the world is getting worse or do you think it's getting better ask someone on the continent of africa what they think because the church is thriving there ask someone in china in communist china in the underground churches if things are going good or bad it's going great in the sense that the church is growing. You see, it's a matter of perspective, but what we have here is 
Jesus Christ saying that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of man, the Son of God. He is ruling now. He will forever rule and he will bring all things in subjection to him. He will fulfill through his people the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 that is repeated in Christ-centered language in Matthew 28, the new creation mandate. May God give us the humility and the willingness to obey. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.